0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
2: I have a brief, a topical stack, Waddy. A Good. stage invader leapt up and grabbed Jace, Jacob Rees-Mogg's microphone uh, in the National Conservatism Conference in Westminster this week to make a political point about fascism before being bundled off by four security men. It was one of the following five people. Which one? Was it Gerard Langley of the Blue Le- Blue Airplanes? Was it Mont Dirk Campbell of the late 60s Proggers' Egg? Was it Alan Boff Wally of Chumbawamba? Stuart Rossiter of East of Eden, or was it the bass guitarist of Fat Mattress, Jim Leverton? Oh. Which of those people jumped up and just and was disturbed the That's, the Conservative Conference this week? Isn't that amazing?
0: That is, I'm, my breath has been taken away by that list there. I, I kind of saw this item. I didn't see who the. Uh, I didn't the realize. I saw it too, and was. I didn't know who it was. It turns out it was Mont Dirk Campbell. Of egg, what?
2: remember egg with uh, Dave Stewart and Steve Hillage.
1: Egg, egg, egg. progressive Progress- progressive
0: rock group. Um, I think were on the Decca DRAM label. I think that's right. And I think they made a record called E equals MC squared. This is amazing. <laughs> I think that this is what you get when you work in a record shop. Exactly, you, know, you are cursed with a- and you memory. can't forget it. You can't undo it. Absolutely. Isn't that amazing? He's
2: now mentioned uh, a member of Extinction Rebellion. He's an activist, so uh, that's the guy. Very good. Not that he looked familiar at all, but I just happened to find out. Extraordinary. So you said you had a stack waddy? I have a stack waddy. The stack waddy is based around the fact... and we, I think we might have done a, a spin on this before, actually, but this is a new version. Damien Lewis has an album out, right? The actor. All right. right. Uh, called Mission Creep, which is coming out in July. And uh, so five albums by actors... For real, one made up by me. Oh, okay. All right. So which of, these, which of these didn't actually happen? Did Jennifer Love Hewitt put out a record called Bare Naked in 2002, including a version of Me and Bobby McGee, reviews. The album's overridingly twangy tonicity suggests it might behove Hewitt to bust out that country album she seems eager to make. Okay, that's one. Oh. Two, Stephen Seagull. Had a record. Did he have a record called Songs from the Crystal Cave in 2005? Stevie Stevie Wonder on harmonica. Did Macaulay Culkin and his band The Pizza Underground have an album called Live at Chop Suey in 2014? Parodying songs by The Velvet Underground with pizza-themed titles like All Pizza Parties, Pizza Gal, and Take a Bite of the Wild Slice. Okay, did that happen? Joe Pesci? Did he have an album called Vincent LaGuardia Gambini Sings Just For You? You're nodding. <laughs> Which was sung entirely in the persona of his My Cousin Vinny character. Uh, review. The album is a mound of failed songs and lame jokes. And lastly, did Simon Pegg have an album called Uncle Dysfunctional in 2005, when he sang and played guitar with Johnny Buckland of Coldplay. It was produced by Youth. Sample track, Beers for Souvenirs. Review. Okay. Review. Imagine the claxons at half speed with added EDM, sung by a weird amalgam of Jarvis Cocker and Johnny Cash, and then try and forget it as
0: quickly as possible. Well, can which I, of
2: those did not happen?
0: Can I first of all say that is just a perfect textbook example of uh, of the Stagwaddy game, which was which was instituted many years ago to record the fact that uh, you simply can't make up pop music. Can you? Because, <laughs> you know, your most ludicrous fantasies are entirely plausible. They are probably yep. happened. You know, they happened many years ago and they've been forgotten. And so I occasionally, as you went through that list, I thought, oh, yes, yes, I remember that. And then I thought, no, I don't remember that at all. And... Like, for instance, Joe Pesci, I know, he he, he made records. He I'm did. Sure, he did make records. Did he make that one? I'm he, not did, sure. he did, actually. He did, no, okay. he, he made real
2: records. And okay. then in 1998, somebody convinced me he should do that. I think it was a disaster. But he sang in the char- in the character of my cousin, Vinnie.
0: Right. I'm going to take a wild stab. Um, I think you made up Jennifer Love Hewitt.
2: Oh, right. No, I didn't know. that was real. Jennifer Love, who was, as was Steven Seagal, as was Macaulay Culkin, which is ridiculous. This terrible record of kind of pizza puns. No, it was it was Simon Pegg. Simon oh, Pegg has think... not made a record. Wow. Well, God. Although well. he has turned up at Coldplay concerts and played the harmonica. There you are. But no, he has never made a record. Certainly, and not one called Uncle Dysfunctional.
0: But he, fact, probably will, he probably will do now. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So working up to the sad news, the death of uh, Martin Amis, um, came as a bit of a shock. Um, and I'm thinking, as well as the, the many you know, qualities of Simon uh, of Martin Amis as a writer, you and I have you know, I've been used over the years by by his writing, particularly oh, his, his criticism his memoir. I thought his
2: memoir was fantastic. Experience is fantastic. Experience, with that incredible picture on the front of him, aged about nine, with a cigarette in his mouth. Oh, it's extraordinary. It's really,
0: I, really interesting and funny. I gave my son that for his 21st birthday. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, and um, and some other things as well. Um, but I always liked criticism. A uh, very f- favourite book of mine of, of Martha Amis is called the Moronic. In- no, is it, did he write the Moronic Inferno? I think he did. Or is that? Clo- I think he did. It's a collection of essays about America. Yeah, very good. Um, but I think it shouldn't be forgotten that alongside all the writing, you know, his image was massively important in in the launching of martin amos in a way in a way that it simply isn't simply is not with any other writer no matter how famous they are nobody cares what they look like really you know nobody cares what jk rowling looks like nobody cares what stephen king looks like whatever martin amos from the day he was first launched and i think i first saw him on uh a BBC Books programme called, was it called Read All About It? I think yep. Melvin Bragg used to chair. The theme tune used to be paperback writer by the Beatles. And they used to have little panels talking about the latest paperbacks. And there he was being launched whenever it was, the early 70s. because he was pretty much a contemporary of mine. And so you took an interest. And there was this guy who turned up with kind of a, Long hair for a writer. Yes, usually wearing a velvet jacket. Velvet jacket and, very and skinny, and very serbic, and usually terrified, terrified interviewers. Usually a cigarette, uh, a lit cigarette being yeah. wielded at all times. But you know, all authors, fiction authors, they all have their pictures taken for the for the jackets of their books. And in their pictures, you can see that they all desperately wish to be taken for rock stars, and they never are. Not ever. They all look like librarians. Absolutely every last one of them looks like a librarian. With the exception. With exception of Martin Amos. Martin Amos, who looked like a rock star. He really he carried himself like a rock star. Well, there
2: was. A, I was just listening to the Radio Four this morning, and somebody, I think, I mean, Salman Rushdie, described his uh, his uh, literary swagger. And I thought that was a good word because actually, swagger was a word that 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 that, that encompassed virtually everything about it. Was it? it was that confidence and that kind of kind of arrogance, actually?
0: Yes, Fantastic. entitlement. You know, absolutely. But he was he was kind of sexy. You know, yeah, he was, and uh, and he carried that all the way through. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, How exceptional he was. Of course, also talking of literary matters, this week, you and I, I sent you the Will Self um, kind of mad column about... Oh, about Adrian Childs. It's fantastic. That is knob, basically, isn't it? (laughs) It's just extraordinary. In case anybody's missed this, Will Self wrote a column about Adrian Childs' Who's uh, you know, broadcaster, sports journalist, and so forth, and um, also married to. Uh, are they married?
2: I think they are married, aren't they? Married the other to
0: half, Cat, certainly, of Kath Viner, the, the... who's the editor of The Guardian. Well. And he has a column in The Guardian. I don't read this. I don't know. This. So <laughs> I'm clearly not as bothered as many people are.
2: Oh, people have got very exercised about it. I think it's one of the most. The, the lamest columns, ever, and, and thus could, could he only be writing it because he's attached to to the editor? No, but there was a famous one about the fact he had uh, Urinal installed in his house, didn't he? People just couldn't couldn't get their
0: heads around. Oh, really? I oh, didn't yeah. say that. Didn't say that. But anyway, Will Self has written a a column about how how you know this all gets up his nose. He's written it in the New European. Which is kind of pretty odd place to be writing that kind of that kind of column. It's not very European at all, is it? No, it's it, not. It's the definition of a kind of, you know, groucho club spat. It's it I can't it, any more parochial than Adrian it's, it's, Childs. Actually. Does absolutely. that mean
2: anything to anybody outside absolutely. Of, I don't know, outside of Kensington, probably not. But
0: I tried to read it and uh, you know, I I failed to read it really. I sent it on to you or link to it, or I, I won't pretend to read it. And I realized why. Do you know how long it is? It's 2,300 words. Now, I've, re- that, I've written columns. No Those columns would be more than
2: 700.
0: Well, yeah, a thousand at the very most. Yeah. 2,300 is ridiculous. You can't sustain a column thought over 2,300 words. It simply can't be done. And it's just, I've attempted to read it it's so tiring to read it, you know and so what he appears to achieve, have achieved is a, is a massive double that he's um he's kind of effectively cancelled his own career <laughs> himself while at the same time somehow um elevating the career of Adrian Charles Adrian <laughs> Charles <laughs> that's right because people they oh well, whatever he, Adrian Charles has done it can't really deserve that kind of thing you know this kind of 2300 <laughs> words of uh, of, of Do you think it's done
2: him that much harm?
0: Who? Will Self. Will Self? I don't think Will Self's stock is terribly high in the literary world in, in the last few years. I don't think it has been. Um, I, I, I'm I, think, to I talk. think because a lot
2: of people <laughs> just think of him as being wildly pretentious. I interviewed him once, actually, for word, and he's really good good value. And I wrote down, I think, about 23 words that he'd managed to squeeze into this conversation which I just never, ever, ever used in any kind of colloquial speech. Some of which I think he may have invented, actually. Yeah, like sure. Robbie Coltrane in Blackadder. Yeah. But uh, interfrastically. But no, I, I thought he was an extraordinary guy. But he's just, he doesn't, doesn't make
0: friends, does he? He doesn't appear to. I was talking to the guy who um, did, um... was I talking to him? No, I was talking to a guy, guy in the audio books business the other day. And we were talking about, you know, how long it took to, to to record audio books and how, you know, certain people are just very good at it and do it without fluffs and so forth. Will Self apparently records an audio book without taking any breaks. Doesn't take doesn't take quarter of an hour off for a cup of tea. Doesn't take a lunch break or anything. Just plows on absolutely through. That's but, remarkable. No, but, I mean, obviously doesn't do it in one day, does he? I mean, he can't. Well, I don't know. He would probably but he never takes a, a break. He'd probably do it in a day and a half if you're not taking breaks, I would imagine. Because, you, know, you know, I've done it a few times. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's it's exhausting. exhausting. Even yeah. though it's
2: your own prose and yeah. you know the rhythm of it and you wrote it yourself and it's familiar, but it's still
0: really t- the amount of concentration.
2: And also you yeah. feel bad whenever you slip up that someone's got to kind of carve that out and patch it all together again.
0: Yeah. Hard work. Well, and apparently he plows through. Anyway, um, uh, more literary news as we have it.
1: This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit.
0: So, Paul Simon has got an intriguing record out. Have you heard it? I have. I was listening to it yesterday. Seven Psalms, and uh, it's... um, well, it's album length, isn't it? But
2: it's... it's thirty-three minutes. It's effectively one track, isn't it? They all it all just runs together. Thirty-three minutes. I thought it was really good. Actually, it's fantastic. It's uh yeah entirely it's... acoustic, isn't it? It's just guitars. It's harmonium. Uh, a little choral, uh gang coming at one point. Um, it's beautiful, and it, it's it's about a lot of it's about the the notion of mortality,
0: isn't it? Do you, can I interrupt you a second? There, do you think? And I know you mean. All the reviews have said this is this is a man's last record kind of thing. This is, this is his last will and testament, musically speaking. No reason to believe that Paul Simon might not go on as long as Willie Nelson or whoever. Yeah. Willie Nelson, who celebrated his 90th birthday a couple of weeks ago, still in fighting uh, good fettle. Uh, Paul Simon, a mere a 81, mere is, is that what it's he is? He's 82, I think. I think. Oh, 82, yeah. okay um so it tends to be taken as his last will and testament is that just something that we read into these things or would you you know if he, if he had put that record out in you know, his 40s would you have would you have thought about it differently i don't know really i,
2: I think it's something we read into I mean, the thing is it's the, it's the coincidence of the fact that you know two years ago he sold his catalogue didn't he um for a huge amount of money kind of thus has got rid of his his songs He's done the farewell tour, hasn't he? So this is the last time i are going to... So he's he's kind of got his house in order. So anything that he might say... But then again, if you're 82, it's likely that you are thinking about the notion of mortality uh, reasonably frequently in terms of your own life and that of all your pals. So I don't know. But there's a track called The Sacred Harp, isn't there? There's one called Your yeah. Forgiveness. There's one called The Lord. The Lord is the ocean rising. The Lord is a terrible swift sword. So you know you can piece it all together and think that this is him sort of yeah as you say <laughs> signing off to some extent. But well uh, yeah,
0: it's interesting that there is a a small group of these records and and they're probably going to grow over yeah. time. So Leonard Cohen's last record was he, he kind of he felt he was getting to the end, didn't he? There he yeah. put out a record called You Want It Darker. Yeah. Um, which could certainly be interpreted in that way, and obviously David Bowie, Black Star,
2: Black Star, which was—I I don't think he knew that he was terminally ill till he finished recording. He was actually making the Lazarus video right. when he got the final diagnosis, but obviously he was aware that he was ill, yeah. um, and therefore it was very preoccupying. And when the record came out, everyone thought that it was his—you know—that he he had been aware throughout the entire thing that uh, that these were his, these his days were numbered. But the one the really significant one I remember was Warren Zevon. you remember The Wind? Oh I counts. Yeah, Warren Zevon. I mean, he was given his, his terminal diagnosis and immediately rang up all his pals, booked the studio, went yes. in and recorded. It yeah. Hence the very funny up, yeah. phrase. They all turned, oh God, yeah, Bruce Springsteen. Yes. Jackson yeah. Brown, Billy Bob Thornton's on it, Jim Calper. And hence the, the great phrase "Enjoy every sandwich," which was Absolutely. his, uh, which was his brilliant advice. He also, that's put, really he, also put out,
0: he also put out a record round about the same time. I don't know if it came round about the same time, which had a wonderful title for a for a kind of last record. Which uh, it was called "My Rides Here." That's right. That's right. What a wonderful! It's
2: good, isn't it? <laughs> My rides here. <laughs> um the other one was johnny cash because johnny cash was misdiagnosed yeah. wasn't he Oh God! Yeah. i think in 1997 that they he was told he had parkinson's and then soon afterwards he was changed to a, a kind of form of multiple system atrophy and he was told he had 18 months to live and i'm fairly sure that it was during that time that he made records like um solitary man do you remember that record Yeah, um, you know, and is that's all about I won't break down the Tom Petty song, Fields of Diamonds, the old folk song, I See a Darkness, um, Mercy Seat, the Nick Case. And and the general feeling was that he thought that his days were numbered, and then then after (laughs) quite a long period of time, he was was re diagnosed. He said, Oh, sorry, we got it all wrong. (laughs) But a bit like Wilco Johnson, actually. So no oh, just thought, well, it oh, is. Because Wilco is. Johnson, you know, was told he had a short time, did his farewell talk, and then was told, he, you know, that he had an extension. And they got it wrong. Yeah.
0: My favourite, uh, I often reflect on this when thinking about this whole syndrome, which, as I say, is will only get, you know, larger, uh, you know, because all these people will continue making records yeah. until, until, they're, until they're gathered as well i would tell you That's that, good. that expression. I was I was talking to a splendid old Shakespearean actor uh, a couple of years ago, and I was recalling an old production that I would seen him in when I was a teenager. I talk about the one of the other actors in it. He goes, "Ah, gathered, <laughs> gathered." That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Gathered long
2: ago. Anyway. That's, really, that's a great expression. <laughs> it's, a it's also a... the idea that you're all in a big gang once you get there. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? All amazing. the old thesps are together.
0: That's amazing. Having Sorry. a dry sherry before lunch. So the one, my one final reflection on this whole thing is Bob Dylan recorded Not Dark Yet, which has got that line, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Yeah. And when I first heard that, I thought, there's a man who hears the beating of the wings. <laughs> you know, there's the man who feels he had not, not got long. It's 25 years ago. I know. <laughs> just, I know holding yeah. a, you know, you can spin that period out. You can, it's quite interesting because Johnny Cash is a classic case of this. You know, the key, I have to think the key shaping thing that shaped our perception, the world's perception of Johnny Cash is Andy Earle's photograph on the cover of the first american recordings album where where's johnny cash's black and white picture we all know this picture shot from below he's wearing this kind of robert mitchum type flared duster coat you know and he's got two dogs at his feet and he looks like an avenging preacher or something and so johnny cash for the for the subsequent however many years he was left which was quite a few years was always photographed this way he was always shown this way he's like a figure out of an old 1940s movie you know what i mean he's an old man whereas if you looked at johnny cash earlier there he was you know in his kind of uh, in his spangly suit, posing with the muppets and absolutely yeah. anybody, it was showbiz Johnny Cash. But no, for the last bit of his life, he's reborn as Gothic Johnny Cash, and uh, Bob Dylan kind of done, has done the same thing, really, completely hasn't. done the same thing.
2: Because Bob Dylan, you look at him now, and he looks possibly older than he actually is, and it's all about wisdom, isn't it? Yes. He's the sage, the prophet, the seer. Yeah. You know, he's learned everything that can be learned in life. You're absolutely right.
0: So, well, we can't let the word goth uh, gothic go by without mentioning that we've been talking to Kathy Unsworth about it was her really book, a book. That, what's it called? The Book of Goth. It's um, called Season of the Witch. The Season of, of the goth. Witch, The Book of Goth. Uh, and and the whole history of the of the kind of dark tendency. Really? Hypocrisy. I thought it was
2: really interesting. She it's talks about goth fathers and goth mothers, Edgar Allan Poe, Jim Morrison, Audrey, Aubrey Beardsley, you know. Also, very interesting conversation about who first used the word goth. She thought it might have been Mary Harron in a 1979 Melody Maker review of Joy Division, didn't she? Well, so well it was then. quite interesting, actually. Who invented yeah. that term? Yeah, yeah. And the other great thing about goths is that, is that goths, when they become goths, they, they 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 never quite give up on it. You know, you can be all sorts of things in life. You can be a terrible old hippie and then completely reinvent yourself. But if once a goth, there's always a gothic streak in you, I think.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, she was very good about just living a, a teenage life in rural Norfolk, wasn't she? You know, in a little
0: bedroom kind and of, of course. posters. And of course, she confirmed my theory that in popular music, It all comes down to one thing and one thing only hair. Hair. Goth
1: hair. The word podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. Talking
0: of hair further, because you never talk about hair too much. Um, Did you see the Nick Broomfield Brian Jones film? I did.
2: I did. I thought it was really good, actually. It's fantastic. And God, so much of that is about hair, isn't it? Well, Brian was immaculate. (laughs) It is, absolutely. And the other interesting thing was that he has a series of relationships. I think I'm right in saying that having fallen out with his parents and basically been booted out by his dad, very moving, to read out his dad's letter to him at the end, apologising for for that, very moving, actually. But having been booted out, he started a, a pattern of existence, which was basically moving into the family homes of the girls he was going out with, who then got pregnant, And then he was booted out. And I think he did this five times. I'm pretty sure. And the other interesting thing was that one of them talks about him very witheringly, actually, and very soberly, and says he was a very very, very bitter and lonely and difficult, uh, complicated guy. And, uh, you know, very wound up about a lot of things. She said, I thought it was very interesting that he always finished up with girls who looked exactly like him. Or if they didn't, he he kind of modelled them to look like him. And she said it was an irony, really, because he, he didn't like himself at all. And yet he wanted these people fashioned in his, uh, in his likeness, you know. I thought it, it was a really interesting film.
0: They also used to say the same about Mick Jagger, didn't they? Um, when Mick married Bianca. Bianca, who basically just exactly like Mick, <laughs> <Jane>. <laughs> astonishing. Goddamn, the perfect. Because couple. Bianca back in the news this week since Jade has been getting into trouble, hasn't she? God, yeah, in a in, in, a, 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 in a
2: restaurant and I beat her. And I think her boyfriend's been arrested. God, she hasn't got four years in four months in jail, has it? Really? I know don't what know. happened. There was totally. an altercation, but my God, she looks like you wouldn't want to cross with her.
0: So she's but, but the other 50, person, She's fifty-one know. years old. I note she's fifty-one. Yeah, I know. So Making Bianca's daughter is fifty-one. I know. And still calling himself jewelry designer. Have you got any jewelry designed by Bianca? <laughs> because I haven't seen much myself. Model anyway. and activist. I know, yeah. no, not yes, much. Model, actor, <laughs> activist. Yes. Um, yeah. So Brian Jones, it's all about the hair. But has anybody ever been overshadowed quite so quickly in popular music? As Brian Jones was. You know, it was his group. You know, he was the one that gave them the name. He was the kind of leader. But because
2: Bill Wyman is, it talks brilliantly, doesn't he, about how he was the architect of their sound that kind yeah. of lean blues sound, that spare sound, and how all his flute and sitar and yeah. line guitar on Little Red Rooster, that, that was an important part of the sound it was. But you felt so much sympathy for him, as you say, his group. And there's an interview where he's asked, so, you know, so what, what inspires you to write the songs? Yeah. And he sort of says, look, I, 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 don't, I don't write it's the songs. so embarrassed. You'll have to yeah. ask Keith and Mick. And the guy like, I doesn't hear him, or I don't know, and then says, so, so go, back, go back to these songs that you write. Yes. He says, no, look, I, no, I, I actually don't, I don't write the songs. You'll have to yeah. go and talk to them. I think this is terrible
1: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist
0: And they must have just decided to put the microphone in his face because he had the best hair. I think that's it. He had the kind of, the you know, the most, um, the iconic Rolling Stones hair. If you were going to draw the Rolling Stones hair in 1965, it would have been Brian that you would have drawn. Yeah. Because Keith's wasn't even that long, really. No. Bill's was kind of odd. Charlie's wasn't that long. Mick's wasn't that long, actually. Brian's was was always long, you know, and it was always just kind of silver perfect, wasn't it? You know, because because people used to, you know, disapproving authority figures used to say, Oh, you can't have long hair, it must be dirty. Well, you looked to Brian Jones' hair and you thought, no, it couldn't possibly be dirty. It looks it looks it absolutely perfect. There's another
2: sweet letter we written to his parents, those letters to his parents, and he says yeah. so, and he just wanted them to love him, and they they found him so difficult, you know. And he wrote to his parents and said, I'm, I'm hoping to see you on Sunday. I must apologise because my hair is rather long. You think, oh, oh, my God. And also, that in fact, he
0: was quite posh, which I
2: don't think I realised, actually.
0: Yeah, he I don't was speaking think it, voice. I, I think it was, yeah, I think that is a reflection of the changing times since then, really. Because yeah. he wasn't, I don't think he was massively posh. But he, the thing that struck me watching the film, and I talked to, spoke to Nick Broomfield about it, is, you know, they kind of they looked like a threat to society, but when you spoke to them, they were like Jennings and Derbyshire. You know, <laughs> Do you remember Jennings and Derbyshire? Yeah, the school, Yeah. The, you know, the, the the prep school, you know, fiction that people used to read in the fifties and sixties. You know that that everybody growing up in those days they knew that they knew how they had to behave. You know, yeah. they might choose not to behave like that, but they knew how to behave. And so particularly when they wrote letters, the letters were very formal. Thank you very much for your, yeah, for very your letter. polite. Yeah. It means a lot to us, all that kind of thing, you know. And I still think it's amazing when you read those early, you know, early letters from the Beatles to fans, you know, in the middle of Beatles maybe. I know they managed to sit down and handwrite an individual letter. And somebody might getting
2: it in the post. It's incredible, really. It's absolutely extraordinary. I thought it was interesting that they're so consumed, the Stones, by self-image, that they're no good when you interview them together. Nobody says anything because they're terrified of saying the wrong thing. Or not well, I was talking weeks. about... You know the it. Beatles, you put a microphone in the middle of the Beatles, they just outdo each other. It's It's the funniest uh, and the most flip.
0: I Are was you- talking... I was talking to uh, John Higgs about this. when John Higgs and I did this thing at the Bath Literature Festival last week. We were talking about the Beatles. And um, I don't, you must remember when the Beatles did Jukebox Jury, when they were the panel on Jukebox yeah. Jury, four of them, special, you know, desk for them to sit behind and so forth. And that was a success. And then not long afterwards, the Rolling Stones were the panel. Not a success at all. No, they were terrible. And the, because the Rolling Stones could not be themselves. The Beatles had found a way to be themselves. Yeah. Even with the four of them, because yeah, they the were cancelled each other out. They absolutely, yeah. and they were always trying to catch each other out. You know. Yeah. Whereas the, whereas the Beatles turned themselves just into the opposite. Encar- They're
2: encouraging other to be funnier and funnier. Yeah.
0: Yeah um interesting uh pet shop boys film was fantastic telly last night
2: my wife and i watching it last night i thought it was amazing neil there were two moments i thought were just brilliant this is uh, this is neil and chris being interviewed by Dermot o'leary i think a yeah, theater, talking right? about yeah. their old tv uh, shown the thing you wrote a wonderful cover story for rolling, uh, for, Radio for, rolling stone. for rolling stone rolling and times rolling yeah. Times. And uh, they're sitting in a little movie theatre, and they specifically asked not to see any of the footage first, which is yeah. brilliant because they are really, really... At some some point, he says, Do you know, I don't think I've ever seen this. You know, no, well, I think... The well, clip the, of Dusty Springfield.
0: The clip and of... And the clip of us
2: in the... Uh, in the Smash Hits Office. office know, Neil, Neil
0: had never seen that. I don't think he'd ever seen it. No, you hadn't. Um, and I get mixed up. This is Smash Hits Office. It must be 83, 84, or something like that. Yeah. And we had two film crews come in round about that period, one BBC, one ITV, both for Saturday morning Kids TV, I think. And I get mixed up which one's which. Uh, One of the features, Martin Fry, but that that was not that one, I don't think. Uh, And it's just amazing to see you and me and Neil and Steve Bush and David Bostock, Birchie and all kinds of people. You know, these things that were done for... uh, just for a laugh, for, for a Saturday morning children's TV, all those years ago, end up being these documents. Historic you're documents. Looking, you're looking at them, you're like, That's just. A you're looking at and thing, not only has it got Neil Tennant, it's also got how magazines
2: were made. Yes. You actually took a photograph <laughs> on a slide, put it in a projector, projected it onto a sheet of paper, and then traced the outline of Paul Weller's head and whatever it was onto a layout. You know, and you 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 had rollers full of wax that you you put the layouts on, and it was extraordinary. It's all that work,
0: was. Sorry, go on. It's all that workaday stuff that is always the most memorable. You know, I'm always I always look love looking at old photographs where they just show you. I don't know Oxford Oxford Street on the third of January, yeah, 1953. yeah, <laughs> and You just think, oh, look at what are they? look at those people, look at the cars. Look at whether they got yellow lines or not, all that kind yeah, of stuff. And um yeah, I tell you what I was when I was writing my book about um the LP, the culture of the LP, a fabulous creation. One of the things we, we had difficulty with was finding photographs of record shops from the days when record shops were ten a penny. Yeah, when record shops were on every corner. Nobody took photographs of them. <laughs> now that they're they hardly here even at all. Yeah, they're a pilgrimage, <laughs> absolutely they're a shrine, and, and so you know that film shows how, as you say, how a magazine was put together in those days. Wouldn't you love to see a film that showed you how I don't know Virgin Records in Leeds worked in nineteen seventy-five or something like that? I yeah. would love to see that kind of thing. Of course nobody filmed anything like no. that because it was just so standard they didn't bother at all. You know. <laughs> I thought it was interesting,
2: w- w- looking at Neil, that I, I felt that, that, that Neil hadn't changed at all since the time that we knew him. No. Uh, I, really extraordinary. He's still exactly the same. He's so modest about their success. But two lovely moments. One th- thing is he has a kind of journalistic eye for detail. He remembers everything. He talks about meeting David Bowie, and he says, David Bowie's eating a ham baguette. He said, I thought, I thought he'd probably be eating kind of Argentinian sardines or something. But no, a ham baguette and rather enjoying it, I think. And then he talks about when they're offered the chance to play Live 8 in Red Square in Moscow, and he's shown the clip of it. And he says, look, we don't really approve of these things. We think that these charity shows really don't really help the charities. They're really just help the careers, the people taking part. So we're going to turn it down. He tells Chris he's turned down. Chris goes, you've turned down Live 8. Get back on the phone. And he rings back and he says, actually, I've... I I I understand that we are doing it after all because it's just a lovely idea that
0: you've been told that they are doing it. You know? It's like a married couple, isn't it? You know, I know. You know I, yeah, if you don't check it with a husband or wife or whatever, I know you're, you're in, in trouble. No,
2: it's it's, a, it's
0: really well worth seeing this BBC program. It will be on iPlayer. It's fantastic. So so I, you know Neil was uh, told me after it appeared that because I asked him about I asked them them about artificial intelligence. And uh, and Neil said, well, you know, it's a tool and, you know, it's not impossible. You might, you might use it on a song that you had kicking around that you'd never managed to finish or you'd never managed to put a bridge on or whatever. And you might get it to suggest something and then change it, but it would move you forward. And he said, he said, Subsequent to that appearing in the piece, they were asked to address a conference about artificial intelligence. No, that was like just so desperate to get get a big name in the like yes. Or, <laughs> or <laughs>
2: actually to get anyone sending positive about it. Because what he was saying was quite positive, and I thought it was a really good point. Yeah. Because if yeah. you get stuck sometimes when you're writing, you tend to Google things idly to see if it'll just send you off in a direction. And of course, you know, if AI can suggest uh, uh, how to fill a hole in one of your songs, as you say, you've always got the option that you won't use it, but one day you, you possibly will use what it suggests. In which case, you've then bought into it, you know. So uh, I thought that was
0: a really interesting. Because most people a, saying, it's absolutely a, not. You know? It's a helper, isn't it? Yeah, it and is. It's, it's quite interesting because you know we've both written for a living for a long time, and if you certainly, particularly the case if you're doing it regularly for a certain title. You you grow used to the fact that the overwhelming majority of paid work in, in writing uh, is drudgery. It's doing the same yeah, stuff is. again and again. It's just finding a slightly different way to say, here's the singles reviews or here's, here's the match report. You know what I mean? It's the same stuff again and again done slightly differently. And so, you know, it can make your brain hurt trying to think of a different way to yes. do it, you know, when you've done it a hundred times or whatever. And so you can see these tools coming along as a way to um way to take some of the drudgery away from it, you know. Um, but then they're, they're never gonna they're not gonna replace the kind of special work that goes into doing something that sounds or reads was- different.
2: There's another thing that Neil said about the most exciting time of his life. I think it was before they'd even made records, that they were living in London, him and Chris, and they were writing songs and trying to record. And all the things that happened to him subsequently, none of them seemed quite as incredible as that. And you think of the astonishing things they've achieved. There was an interview with Sting the other day, Sting has gone on this Ivan the thing, and Sting made a really interesting point. He was talking about, he, he said he was up a, a ladder painting the ceiling of his flat in 1977, and he had Radio 1 on, and Roxanne came on the radio. He said he pretty much fell off the ladder. He said, he said uh, after that, he said, it's just diminishing
0: returns. Now I'm sure it's still, I thought true. that was
2: a really interesting thing, and I, I, I felt the same way, that, that life is is so like that. I can remember that my first thing that I ever wrote, appearing in December 1977 in um, in the Record Mirror. It was a review of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. They spelt my name wrong, actually. Mark Ellen, E-double-L-A-N. And I can remember reading that and rereading it and just being absolutely intoxicated and going out and just sort of... I, I, did I swing around lampposts clicking my heels? I probably did. I don't yeah. know. I remember being so, so thrilled. And uh, so that's a pattern of life, isn't it?
0: I've got a I've got a quote here from uh, Charles Dickens, oh, one yeah. of my favourites. When... He first got something printed in a magazine and he remembered how he'd delivered the copy um, one night, posted it in a letterbox in a dark office up a dark court in Fleet Street. I think about this every time I ever get, find myself down Fleet Street. If you get down there and you go across the road for St. Brides, you cut through into what I think is called Johnson Court, where Samuel Johnson's yeah. house was, you know the place I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then you go a little you go in between uh, a pub and an office or whatever. And I always think of Dickens going up there and posting his, you know, his first piece into the office uh, at twilight with fear and trembling into a dark letterbox in a dark office of a dark court in Fleet Street. And then when he says, it appeared in all the glory of print, on which memorable occasion, how well I recollect it! I walked down to Westminster Hall, because he was working in Parliament at the time as a parliamentary reporter, and turned into it for half an hour because my eyes were so dimmed with joy and pride that they could not bear the street. And I wasn't fit to be seen by anybody. I thought that's, <laughs> that's Charles Dickens. And also, do you know what's interesting about that? his name wasn't on it because That's his right. name wasn't on anything he wrote on early on. You know what I mean? And so when it was, it was, just, it was a pseudonym anyway. So Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, That's right. But that was just pride in seeing his work, you know, in print at the age of whatever he was, 20 or something. Well, I'd like um, to think by eyes, but
2: were similarly dimmed with joy and pride. Right? It's, it's so dimmed with joy and
0: view. pride. Dimmed with joy and pride is a really good way of describing it. It is it's beautiful. But no that that business yes, about tears. that business about being played on the radio is so true. And and really the BBC, you know, if they want to promote Radio 1 and Radio 2 It'd be a really natural thing to do. Just go and get all the famous people in the world to tell you about when they were first played on radio on the radio too, because they'll all remember it. Yeah. Absolutely, every one of them will remember it, because they, they can do. You know, if you talk to them, they they never and particularly if they hear it, if they're a band, if they hear it together. Or one of them hears it and then rings up the other one and say, "Quick, turn on, you oh know, yeah, whatever it is we're being played." And then they just catch the end of it, or whatever you know. That is uh, that is in the in the days well, before Bragg, you could replay anything, you know.
2: You could get Billy Bragg to tell that lovely story about him being out in Hyde Park with a load of mates playing football one summer's evening, and they had John Peel on, didn't they, on the radio? And uh, and he hears John Peel saying that he he. he kill for a mushroom biryani or it was and he raced out got a mushroom bir- biryani took it to um to broadcasting house and they rang up from reception so there's a guy here with the mushroom biryani and he's also bought a record and i think that's when he delivered his ep that he'd made oh, really? and uh, peel then played that i think twice and thanked him very much and those kind of immortal moments i mean billy bragg still talks about that with tears in his eyes Complete you know mm. changed his career really amazing that-
0: Graham Nash uh, mentioned in an interview this week uh, with Saar Franz Mantor, I think, um, he said, I don't think we'll be remembered. There's another person thinking about his epitaph. Yeah. I don't think we'll be remembered. Janie Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix will be remembered, but we won't. Well, I thought it's interesting because... I don't who, think Hendrix will, actually. Well, it's interesting, that is, <laughs> because, you know, you, you and I are old enough I, it's the most frequently uh, used, you know, expression in this podcast. you and I are old enough, yeah. yeah. People of see, our age to see how people's stock waxes and wanes, you know, post death. You know, so Jimi Hendrix's stock used to be a lot higher than it I is now. It strikes slide. me, yeah. strikes me. I don't know why that is. You know, it could be. There's, there were just so many Jimi Hendrix reissues years ago. There was a kind of glut on the market, and there's there's very little curiosity to hear anything new because there's just tons of it's been out there. And uh, I I've also, got a theory about Hendrix. Well, I think it's
2: about seeing Hendrix play. If you see a film of Hendrix playing, it's fantastic. If you take that film away and you don't see the whole. Technical performance, mm. then you're just left with the song and the sound on the radio, which you very, very rarely hear. I think it's like the same with U2. Actually, I quite like quite like U2's records, but but I don't rush off and listen to them, and you never really hear much of them on the radio. But I have seen U2 uh, play a couple of times, and it's fantastic. When you All see right. them play, it's a spectacle. And I think I think and I think that might be the same with Led Zeppelin. I don't know Led Zeppelin again. It's a it's just a particular sound. And what makes you last is the quality of those songs, I think, um, and whether or not they have enough of them. I think Leonard Cohen will last. I think Joni Mitchell will last. People who write songs that, that you could apply to your own life, Paul Simon, a really good example, Pet Shop Boys again, actually. But people, there are certain acts who you can't separate from the concept of the act themselves. But I think Oasis is a really good example. You can't hear an Oasis record without thinking of the idea of Oasis. And yeah. I wonder if those things will last as long as some other things. I don't know. I'm not yeah.
0: sure. But Joni Mitchell, you know, like we say, Jimmy Andrews' stock, not quite as high, it seems to me, as it was when, 30 years ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joni Mitchell's stock, on the other hand, higher than it was. Much higher too. too. incredible. Although she was always, you know, the, the, she was always popular and um, and much acclaimed but uh and nick
2: drake stock higher beach boy is possibly higher i don't know yellow steely dan there are various people you feel you're still really rumbling kate bush too
0: there was a long piece this week uh, i read somewhere about how steely dan's time is now <laughs> really you know, really wow that, that they they, they kind of sound they sound um you know if if you believe that that Steely Dan are the geniuses of cynicism. Yeah. Um, now's the time for them, really. You know what I mean? Because they they sound as if they uh, foretold absolutely everything, everything that's happened subsequently. But it's interesting, this whole business about posthumous reputation. I was, um, we've just, this year, isn't it? Is it the uh, whatever anniversary? 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio yeah which is the first proper compilation of his compilation collection yeah. of, of his of his nearly complete works it's put together by is it Hemming and Condell the the um, managers or whatever he didn't want it to be forgotten because he'd been dead at that point 8 years or something and they put this thing together and that's where his reputation starts, you know, because during his lifetime, it's just one of many dramatists, whatever. So that's like a greatest hits album. Compared. It's a greatest hits yeah. album that comes out, you know, quite a few years afterwards. And for the first time, people have the unusual experience offered to them of being able to sit down and read a play. Whereas it, you never thought of reading a play before. Or you saw it performed, you know, but, but you could read it. And this was so successful that they did a further edition a few years later. And this time it had an introduction by Ben Johnson writing about my old mate Shakespeare and how, how remarkable it was. So it's at that point that you get Shakespeare taken out of the, the mass of Jacobean Elizabethan uh, dramatists and, and being promoted as the great genius of English, English letters, which he's been ever since. And you know, it's interesting parallel to this. Is Robert Johnson's King of the Delta Blues? Thing. Yes, it is. Just yes, the is. same thing happens. Yeah. So, so he, Robert Johnson, died, What, thirty-seven? Something like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, in nineteen thirty-eight, John Hammond, you know, the the great impresario, A and R man, journalist, whatever, is putting together these concerts, Carnegie Hall. Call From Spirituals to Swing, which is the idea of celebrating, I suppose, the African-American tradition of music in the United States. And he's got everybody there. He's got Benny Goodman there, there, all sorts of people. And he wants Robert Johnson because he's heard Robert Johnson records. And so he tries to get Robert Johnson then finds out he's dead. And I think during the concerts, they actually wheeled a gramophone onto the stage and played... Or a Robert Johnson seventy-eight for the audience, so they could hear what they, you know, the nearest thing to what they would have heard had Robert Johnson come to New York. Had he been still alive, or whatever. And when King of
2: the Delta, Delta Bluesing, so came they, up, there was no is,
0: picture of. No, this is the thing. So n- nothing happened then, really, apart from the Second World War. Okay, fifties, nineteen sixty-one, John Hammond's instigation, Columbia put together the King of the Delta Blues Singers. There's no photograph. They have no idea what he looks like. So they... They, they have a line turn, drawing on the front. They have the line drawing, of, you know, showing him from above as if he's in a kind of prison yard or something like that, playing you know, playing, playing the guitar. Hammond gives that record to Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan becomes obsessed with Robert Johnson to the extent that when Bringing It All Back Home comes out in 1964, is that Right. Yeah. are we got right? One of the artifacts so, yes. on the cover alongside Bob Dylan is a copy of Teen of the Dell's Blues Singers by Robert Johnson. So and so the thing the thing they'd done is they'd said, okay, Robert Johnson is not just a Delta Blues singer, he's the king of the Delta Blues singers. You know, so it's like it's like Ben Johnson with Shakespeare. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just take this person out of the mass. And, uh, and that's, been it. that's been his reputation ever since, you know, and will we'll continue. It's an extraordinary thing. So that's how kind of posthumous re- uh, reputations, you know, happen. So who knows whether Crosby Stills Nash. I know, you know, that's the thing you want to know in 50
2: years' time. Crosby Stills Nash, I kind of feel, is also music that's, that's tied to a particular time that can date. You know, and the, their association is still late sixties, I think, and early seventies. But there are lots sure.
0: of big authors, you know, that, that nobody reads anymore. It strikes me the, the 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 one of the biggest authors of the Victorian period was Walter Scott. So Walter Scott, yeah. I even not nobody reads Walter no, Scott you know. anymore. Stuart so McCurney was on Radio Four the other day talking about J B Priestley So J B
2: Priestley, everyone in yeah, Sweden
0: has come. Yeah, of absolutely. In,
2: the the yeah. winner of that particular race is Orwell. Kind of contemporary yeah, and always that, the one that everyone still talks about and still reads, you know. That, so you can just come in and out of fashion, you know.
1: Definitely. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So
2: Andy Rourke of the Smiths. And it's lovely to see all the tributes to him, quite rightly, because I went back and listened to some of those records. Um, this Charming Man, Big Mouth tracks get uh, Barbarism Begins at Home. Frankly, Mr. Checking. And the, the bass parts on those are absolutely extraordinary. A lot of it's to do with the fact that it's a trio. And if there's only one guitar, there's all that extra room to explore as a bass player. But Andy Rourke's style was this really lean, sharp, wiry, kind of driven funk sound, which was a combination of those beautiful, um, kind of high melodic runs and big, fat bass root notes. And actually, it was just as integral to the Smiths' sound as anything else. It, I think he's absolutely fantastic. You know, you think all those groups were, if you took out, they took out the whole of the Oasis rhythm section, all three of them, and nobody really noticed. You know, but but in the Smiths, it was a particular sound, and uh, he was really a big part, the big main architect of it. I think, and uh, wonderful chap. Lovely to see him so uh, so widely acclaimed. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. <laughs>